0: Before we begin this week's episode, I just wanted to let you know what's going on with the show. There are three episodes left in season two, and I really want to make a season three, but I need your support. I have a Patreon crowdfunding page, it's at patreon.com slash WTTE, and I'll put a link on my website as well. If you stick around until the end of the episode, I'll give you the full details, but basically I need to build a support base of very small monthly donations from my regular listeners. If you're one of those, if you enjoy listening, if you appreciate the work that goes into each episode, maybe you would consider heading over to Patreon and signing up. It takes just a couple of minutes, and there are some rewards there I think you might like as well for signing up. I'll give you some more details at the end of the show. Thanks.
1: I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. It's actually not that long ago. It's only about maybe four years ago, maybe 2013 was the year that I uh, had an existential crisis.
0: Rick O'Shea, a voice most Irish listeners will recognise, RTE radio presenter, and more recently, a central part of the Irish
1: literary scene. I went into Hodges Figgis on Dawson Street in Dublin, and I remember looking around at the bookshelves around me. I think I had a voucher and I was going to go buy some new books. And I realised that there was no way in my life I was ever going to manage to read not only all of the books that were around me in one room, but all of the books that I wanted to read. And everybody I think who reads goes through that where you go, I'm I'm just as this crushing weight of new books by authors I love or on subjects I'm interested in, and I'm never going to get there. And then as opposed to all the other times in my life that had happened where I just, you know, let myself feel that existential ennui and then just you know walked out of the shop with a few new books I thought right I'm going to do something about this Um, I went home and I was talking to my wife and I said look I'm going to try and read a lot more books this year coming up I'm going to try and read a big chunk of books to see if I can you know see if I can do it at that stage I think I was reading maybe somewhere around 15, 16, 17 books a year um, a little more than one a month and so I said to her I'm going to read 100 books next year uh, she gave me the usual look she does when I come up with one of these schemes, which is fair enough, best of luck. with it. If you think you can manage that, off you go and I'll help you wherever I can. But I then made uh, the decision that kind of tipped it over the edge, which was I said, I'm going to say this out loud publicly to people, because if I say this out loud publicly to people... I will have to stick to it if I decide I'm reading 100 books this year and I only tell my friends and family and I don't do it no one's going to care if I say it online and I write uh, about it in uh, the blog that I had at the time and I said it you know publicly then other people are going to hold me to it and so that to me would give me an added impetus at those moments where I was going oh just I can't I just I don't want so I did it I said it I started reading um, a few places noticed it, as they tend to do, and when, you know, newspapers are bored in January and they don't have much to talk about, they go, oh, there's your man from the radio who's going to read 100 books this year, let's interview him about it. So I did a couple of things with a couple of newspapers. I was writing a column for the uh, Indo at the time, um, and I wrote a piece about that in there as well. I ended up going on Arena and Radio 1, and then it becomes a thing where loads of people know about it, and then you definitely have to do it. Um And I did. I spent that year going back, doing recap pieces, reading loads of books. I made it to the end of the 100 books by the time, just about two days before the end of the year. And I just, it was one of the most extraordinary feelings because I looked back at the list of books that I'd read that year. And I thought, how many of these would I not have read if I hadn't challenged myself to read a little bit more? And people said, well, you know, maybe you should start a book club. To which my immediate reaction was always, thanks, but no thanks. I'm a bit of a misanthrope. I don't really like people very much. I'm not very good with people. I know it's part of my job. I know I have a face I have to put on. But the idea of of having to do that on a weekly or monthly basis just killed me. I, I couldn't deal with that. So I, I then came up with the idea of, well, why don't we try to do this online? Facebook seemed the most logical place to do it because there's already a community of people there. Huge amounts of people who would be interested in this already have Facebook accounts it would cost me nothing to set up which was great and uh, so I just set up a Facebook group and I thought you know this will be for the relatively few hundred people eventually who will want to chat about books and we'll all chat in here and that'll be fine as and of uh, I think tomorrow there are 17,000 people in that group and it's increasing at a rate of about 1,000 every six weeks um, so I'm now responsible for all of these people and this community that I accidentally set up and had no intention of turning into
0: So, Ricochet, radio presenter, book lover and self-declared misanthrope, now runs Ireland's largest book club, a hugely active and devoted online community. But perhaps inevitably, it has become so much more than that. Book clubs are, and always have been, about community, about learning new things, about socialising, around a shared interest, and they're the sort of activity that thrive on real-world interaction.
1: It started off as a, as a community of people entirely online talking about books. But very quickly, people started saying things like, "We know, can we all meet up? And that was the thing I didn't want to do in the first place. This was why I'd set it up online. And I resisted for a long time until I was offered an interview with uh, with a playwright who was in Dublin and who had written the uh, play version of The Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime. And they said, well, would you like to do a book club event where people can get together and meet up and you'll do a little public interview with him and it was the first one I ever did and there was there was such a wonderful vibe about it and they got to meet the author at the time and one of those led to another which led to another which led to another which then you know has, has rolled all the way downhill to the point where we do these on a really regular basis now we do it at festivals now you know I, we do these events everywhere Um. And that's how people get their fix of meeting everybody in the real world and getting to, to meet up. A lot of people have developed proper serious friendships with, with groups of people that they've met up as a result of through this. So it was never intended to be a real world book club to begin with. But one way or the other, it forced itself into being a real world book club.
0: Reading may be a solitary pursuit for some, but there's a clear desire for so many people to be part of a community based around books. To be part of a shared social reading space, to read aloud, to comment and criticise, to recommend and enlighten. There are tens of thousands of book clubs with hundreds of millions of members all across the world. They can be social gatherings where the book is entirely incidental, or sombre, serious affairs with strict rules and regulations, or, or usually something in between. They're a cultural phenomenon we often pay very little attention to, but they're incredibly important, and they always have been for education and self-improvement, for access to otherwise unattainable knowledge, and for a very long time as spaces where otherwise marginalised women could gather, debate, and discuss not only literature, but the important political, social, and cultural issues of the day. book clubs have been around in one fashion or another for a very, very long time. In fact, if you replace Facebook with corresponding by letter and book club with literary salon, you kind of have the same thing.
2: They corresponded about the topics in letters, but they had this physical setting where they could get together in person and discuss and converse, you know, providing kind of a a platform for them or a forum for discussion.
0: This is Dr. Amy Prendergast, a teaching fellow in 18th century writing in the School of English in Trinity College, Dublin, and author of Literary Salons Across Britain and Ireland in the Long 18th Century, which is exactly what I wanted to talk to her about, the 18th Century Literary Salon what you could, in many respects, call the first book clubs.
2: Really important example of associational life, so sociability or people getting together and gathering together. And I guess... The key things about the salons is that they were mixed gender to start with, Um, so it's a mixed gender, voluntary gathering of social elites. And in the salons, what's also key is that it was women who generally presided over the gatherings and they did this in kind of um, fashionable settings within their home.
0: And this is key, they are meetings in people's homes, they're not in the taverns or the coffee houses of this period. They were not, of course, exactly like today's book clubs. For one, they were strictly for a very small, elite and educated section of society. And there were other differences too.
2: One of the big things that's different about the Psalms to, say, the reading parties or the book clubs is that the author was generally present. So it would be someone circulating their own work um, in advance, say, of it being published. So it was often circulated in manuscript form. So people would give feedback, in a sense, on the material that they were reading there. So it's not like they had homework in advance of it, but they, um, they'd they contribute this kind of collaborative effort.
0: But on the other hand, you can definitely recognise some characters from your average contemporary book club, even in the 18th century.
2: Some of the, the French salon hostesses in, in the archives that still exist, you can see that they have different topics that they want to bring up. So the guests aren't aware of it, or the participants, but they have a sense, because you, know, you have this idea of the salon hostess as the person who's really directing the gathering so if one person is taking up too much of the the conversation to kind of put a hold to that and to to bring it back to a different topic so elizabeth vesey who held salons in dublin and london and uh, we know with her that she was favoring a zigzag pattern that you know often salons were done in a kind of um a U-shape formation where everyone faced each other but she liked zigzags to move people around and so on. Um, So it it really depended on the salon hostess, the person that was organising it, um, how she wanted to arrange her guests, how she wanted uh, discussion to flow, you know, was it going to be interrupted by the serving of tea or the distribution of ices to the guests, you know, so it, it was They had an awful lot in common in terms of, you know, as you say, the mixed gender, the social elites, um, the literary focus, but then within that there were a lot of differences between them.
0: Hidden agendas for discussion, agonising over seating choice, choosing the best complimentary beverages – not that much has changed. And then there's the fact that stands out in all of this. At a time when women were socially and politically marginalised, it was exclusively women running and controlling access to these events in many cases making or breaking the careers of aspiring writers. They were hosts and participants and, as many argued at this time, harmonizers.
2: You have to kind of go back to the 17th century where it all began in France. Um, and in France it was this emphasis on men and women coming together and um, finding a way to be polite together outside of the court in a, in a different setting and teaching manners to people, teaching people how to discuss in a polite way. Um, And then it moved on from there. So in the 18th century, they still um, kept the woman as a hostess in France, but the participants were mostly male, whereas in Britain and Ireland, the participants were, were male and female. It was really important Um, for the women, both as participants and as hostesses, for a variety of reasons, particularly because they could use conversation as a tool for education. You know, they didn't have access to formal education. And a lot of people have looked at the salons in that sense as giving women um, a way of accessing intellectual discussion, debate and so on. But in the 18th century as well, there's a sense that men and women bring something different to the conversation and that women are the great harmonizers as well in their role as the hostess so that they can bring everyone together in a way that's respected by by others
0: so the 18th century literary salon was a group of wealthy elites sitting in a grand drawing room discussing literature and sipping tea how do we get from there to a group of people sitting on their laptops discussing literature on facebook well there are a couple of steps
3: the book club as we think about it today is relatively, has a relatively um, short and unchanged history in the last 200 years.
0: Guest number three.
3: My name is Danelle rayburg I am a professor in the School of Communication at a small university in Nova Scotia called Mount St. Vincent University. My main focus is studying readers
0: Professor Ray burke is also the author of a collection, very usefully for this episode, called Reading Communities from Salons to Cyberspace. And it's all about the history of the book club.
3: As people were becoming more and more literate um, in the 1800s and more people had access to education, book clubs or at that time reading circles or uh, literary societies were largely Uh, educational endeavors um, or institutionalized via education institutions and religious institutions so you'll see um, you'll see in various parts of the Western world this is not to say that collective or shared reading wasn't happening in other parts of the world because I'm almost certain that it was I just don't have access to that knowledge We had institutions um, that were trying to look at or promote reading as a way of bettering society. An educated person um, doesn't have time to cause any kind of disruptance or uh, disturbance.
0: There were various formalised reading groups established at this time. They were set up to encourage people of all classes to read and discuss literature, and of course to make sure they chose the right books. The most famous example in the US was the Chautauqua movement. It was set up in 1871 and soon grew to 100,000 members, and it was widely imitated. One of these imitators was the National Home Reading Union, set up in Britain in 1889, and its aims were to guide readers of all ages and classes, especially working class men and women, in their choice of literature. There were special editions of the selected books, associated literature with discussion questions, help in setting up reading groups, and so on – I mean, again, very like today's book clubs. There were moral and ideological aims as well. One stated purpose was to, quote, "...check the spread of pernicious literature among the young." Ultimately, however, the National Home Reading Union proved far more popular with middle-class readers who were interested in self-improvement and education the working class readers the union was intended to reach were not particularly interested in imposed reading lists dictated from on high women in particular were attracted to reading groups of this type.
3: it was in the late um 1800s where women started moving into um having a little bit more time these were wealthy women predominantly white although not exclusively where they had time to gather together, and usually what they were doing is gathering under the name of some sort of religious order, um, because that was seen as the only acceptable way to get out of the house, if you were doing something that was good morally. And then um, that sort of gathering together, women gathering together, ebbed off um after world war ii and
0: gradually the authority of the various institutions and organizations with their prescribed lists started to wane
3: they resisted the, that authority and the formalized book clubs evolved into more semi-formal or even informal gatherings and we see a lot of that um, of women in particular gathering in the 1960s and 70s um, and with a little bit more or obvious to us now in the records more political um, political impetus behind them. That's not to say that those are er- that earlier book clubs didn't have some sort of uh, political imperative because they did or social imperative. Um, it's been said by Barbara Sickerman that 75% of the American libraries for example were, were funded and 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 uh started by women who were reading together we we also know of african american um book clubs that weren't predominantly women they were mixed genders often uh, that were gathering largely because they knew that you had that readers had cultural capital um that means that of course, they were taking a little bit more seriously. If they could read, they understood that.
0: So reading groups were a way of accessing knowledge, of gaining cultural capital, and of course socialising and networking. And so book clubs, now with reading material chosen by the members rather than somebody else, continue to grow in popularity. Until a very different type of authority came along. It's
3: 20 years now. 1996, I think she began just seems like just yesterday for some of us
1: and what we want to do is start a book club here on the oprah show because i know a lot of you are in reading clubs out there and you have a book of the month and so forth
0: oprah's book club a book club so phenomenally influential that a novel once recommended on the show could often expect sales figures in the millions
3: she did change the way that we think about books i think giving Making books part of popular culture um, has had a profound influence on people talking about books. And there's no denying that within the Academy for sure that the mass appeal of people like Oprah or Richard and Judy, because of their huge influence, In their commercial influence, publishers and authors and marketers all pay big attention. And then people who fancy themselves serious readers discount them. Meanwhile, they're probably reading the same book.
0: And there's certainly a snobbery about things like the Oprah Book Club. If the masses are reading this book, then clearly it's not literary enough for me the effect of the Oprah Book Club and others like it has been profound socially, culturally and commercially.
3: I think what they've done is is created a milieu of popular culture access to literature. So we have, we have it happening on TV, we have it happening in radio, we have it happening in podcasts, so making literature more accessible to the masses.
0: But there is by definition a selection process. Modern celebrity-based book clubs may not be recommending books for the same reasons as an organisation like the National Home Reading Union, but they're still making choices and there's a responsibility in that. And so I
1: was curious as to where Ricochet felt he fit into all of this. I love being influential. Let's not pretend that I don't love being influential in some small way. And I still think it is in some small way because those people you were talking about, the, the Oprah's and, and the Mark Zuckerberg's and Reese Witherspoon does it these days. And Florence, Welch from Florence and the Machine has a book club in, in, in the UK. They're less communities and they are more top down recommendations. So Oprah recommends a book People go away and read it. That's the end of the story. Or certainly Mark Zuckerberg recommends a book or Bill Gates recommend a book. And then it disappears into the ether. For for us, and certainly for what I do within the book club, um, I recommend certain books every month. Some people will pick up on that. And then the rest of it is the rest of the month where we all talk about other books that people have liked. I'm engaged in the community pretty much every day of the week. I try to take weekends off, but I, I you know, every day I'm in there talking on other people's comments and engaging with... I'm as much a part of the club as anyone else is. So I think my, my role is quite different when it comes to that. In terms of, you know, am I part of the Irish Richard and Judy? The, the, the new thing I've just started doing with Eason's is really weird because it started, whatever, two months ago. Myself and Sinead Moriarty, um, who's an incredibly well-known Irish author, um... We were asked by Eason's, would we recommend books for them in the physical world? So just like Richard and Judy in the UK, if you go into any Eason store in Ireland, there will be a table. That table has My Ugly Mug on it and Sinead's Lovely Mug on it. And on that table are eight books that we've picked. And it's, it's almost the exact opposite of what I, I do in the book club online in that it's purely physical. It's physical, real world. Walk into bookstore. There it is in front of you. Would I hope to have some sort of influence in terms of books that people read? Yeah. And and in terms of we've only done one uh, selection so far. Part of it is trying to make sure that books that either I thought didn't get a fair crack of the whip first time around get a better, more frontal position. Um And part of it is to recommend books that might not otherwise get as much of a push behind it in every Easons in the country. I'm not going to be recommending Stephen King. There's no point. Stephen King, has he'll be there. It's all based on personal taste, though. And it is all based on my own personal taste, which is left field and unusual and weird. And uh, so as to how I see myself in all of this. I don't know.
0: And so we are where we are today. Top-down, celebrity-led book clubs, groups of people meeting to seriously discuss a novel, groups of friends meeting ostensibly about a book, but really just to have a chat in a friendly environment, online book clubs in numerous different formats. And in all of these formats, it is and always has been an activity which is overwhelmingly female for quite a number of reasons.
3: From my own research of contemporary book club, women uh, who choose to do read together and discuss the books that they read together, feel like they need a place where they can continue to grow intellectually. And to do this um, in a book club setting is often perfect for them because it is predominantly women. Uh, and they feel, I, I hate use the word safe but they do they feel safe intellectually they feel safe emotionally many times the book club acts as a a social circle so they respect um, other members and and can and can talk quite freely many of the book clubs that i've studied and the demographics show that book club readers are highly educated so they're working predominantly working women who might or might not have the opportunity to talk about books and to talk about politics to talk about society outside of their works or inside their workspace.
1: I do have stats on the gender breakdown of the book club as well and it's 86-87% women. I tried in the early days to convince more men to join, I tried to make a big deal out of it, I tried to get them in the door with a cattle prod, I tried everything I could. And eventually there comes a point where you just go, nope, there's nothing I can do about that. And every day when I have to click accept, 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 accept beside all of the new people coming in, I have to accept that these days nine out of every ten of those are going to be women. I have no idea where my community is going to go. There's 17,000 people in it at the moment. That's unmanageable to the point where I'm an admin, my wife is an admin and one of my friends is an admin as well. So when I go away on holidays, my wife and I are away on holidays, she has to, you know, take care of the rouse while we're away. I just love that there are so many people that are passionate about one thing and that thing is reading books. And I was never sure... All of these people were always there. They always existed. These people are all around Ireland. But for most of them, they never had a book club to be part of. So maybe they live in a rural area where they don't know a lot of their mates that read the same sort of books that they do. Or maybe they live in a city and they don't really have a good friend network because they're either older or because they're someone who's just recently moved here. And for these people, this gives them that virtual community of people to talk to about a subject that they're mutually interested in that they wouldn't have had otherwise so it's connecting little dots all around the country and all of these people who live in the, you know the far corners of Ireland all have one place to come and chat about this kind of thing i think that's its strength that's its that's its power
3: over the years of course you read about people whose books are so important to them and their and their clubs are so important to them my first kind of shocking and just overwhelming overwhelmingly good find was in the BC British Columbia archives where I read about a woman named Margaret McMicking who actually immigrated at the turn of the 19th century from Scotland to join her husband in Canada and later on uh, in her married life she formed or was part of a forming group under the auspices of the National Home Reading Union and they started a, a literary society Uh, in Victoria, British Columbia, and over 35 years, she only missed two meetings, and this group met every two weeks. She missed a meeting. Yeah, I know. That's that's, like incredible dedication. She missed a meeting for the death of her son and the death of her husband. Otherwise, she made all of the meetings. Um, That kind of dedication to a group of people, is really incredible to me.
0: So, three centuries after the literary salon, book clubs are still incredibly powerful at bringing people together. They can be dismissed as simply a few friends using a book as an excuse to meet up and drink, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they can also be, and very much have been, political, ideological, subversive. They've provided a space for education and learning where none was available. They've played a key role in women's history, They've revolutionised how we talk about and consume books. And they've transformed the role literature plays in popular culture. So that's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. As I mentioned at the beginning, I have reached a point with the show where I really need your support to continue making new episodes. Podcasts like this, with guest interviews, scripted presentation, music, sound design, editing... They just take a long time to make, it's often 30 hours or more to make a single episode. I love making this show, but it's difficult to spend time on it at the expense of other paid work, so I have a Patreon crowdfunding page. I've actually had one from the beginning, but I never really did much on it because it was yet another thing to spend more time on. However, from now until the end of the season, I'm going to really focus on trying to build a small but dedicated support base. From the feedback I've got, I know there are people out there who really love the show, so if you're one of them, if you'd be happy to do the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee every few episodes, you can head over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash W-T-T-E, and pledge a few dollars. In return, I will thank you, reward you, and most importantly, make more episodes. I have lots of plans for Season 3, and if you're a Patreon supporter, you'll be the first to find out. Special thanks this week to my three amazing guests Rick O'Shea, Dr. Amy Prendergast and Professor Danelle Rayburg-Sedo There are links to all of their bios to the Rick O'Shea Book Club and to their various publications on the Words That Affect website which is WTTEpodcast.com More great Irish music this week as well by Overhead the Albatross and by Paddy Mulcahy Links and details are on the site too and the show is on Facebook and on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at Eid. Drop by and say hello. And that Patreon link, once again, is com slash W-T-T-E. Thanks. See you next time.
1: This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.